thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 26 minutes to 10 o'clock and we're moving on. we with The Naked Scientist. Do give us your questions. Call us now on 021-446-0567-011-8830702. We are taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. Uh, I've been smart. Good morning, Chris. Welcome. <laughs> Oh, hello, Rudy. There I am, uh, firing away. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm looking at this information about what makes knuckles crack. I definitely want to know, but I also want to know why is it when somebody's cracking their knuckles that I feel pain when I watch them do it? Oh, it's it's terrible. I was talking to a gentleman who I speak with in New Zealand on Radio New Zealand last night, and and I was telling him about this piece of research that's just come out, and he instantly held his hand up to his to his microphone and then deployed a salvo of five knuckle cracks straight at me, and I was left heaving and reeling. It's just such an awful sound, isn't it? Um, we we don't know why we find it so horrible, but I think it's the sort of finger equivalent of the nails down a blackboard experience. You know, when someone sort of scrapes their fingers down a blackboard and it just makes the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. And I think it's it's partly because some of the sounds in those sounds sound to us in our evolutionary sort of origins a bit like an animal in distress. So it plugs into a very primitive part of your brain circuitry that puts you on high alert because you think that one of your comrades is being attacked or killed and so you have to be more vigilant. Maybe. Who knows? But Mm. the the beautiful new piece of research actually really deals with a a question that's been going on for almost a 100 years because scientists have been looking at bubbles in joints and how joints work for a long, long time. And then in the 1940s, this group of British researchers... They said, well, you know, this knuckle-cracking phenomenon, what we think's going on is that when a knuckle or another joint pops and clicks and cracks, there's a bubble forming inside the joint in the fluid in there, and it's the bubble popping into existence that makes the sound. Everyone was happy with that for about three or four decades, and then 1970s come along, it's cavitation mania. Everyone's obsessed with this idea of cavitation, and this is where bubbles collapse on themselves under certain conditions, and when they do so, they release energy, and that energy can damage things. And you see this on boat propellers, for example. You get pits and holes in boat propellers which cavitate. Uh, so there were these two theories. Is it a bubble popping into existence, mm. or is it a bubble collapsing on itself? No one knew. Along comes Greg Korchuk, who's a researcher at the University of uh, Alberta in Canada, and he and his colleagues have now nailed it, if you excuse the finger pun, because what they did was to put one of their colleagues into an MRI scanner, they put a rope around his index finger, and they pull on the rope until the joint goes crack, and they can capture it in the scanner. And they can see, hey presto, at the same time you get the popping sound, a bubble or a void appears in the joint space the bubble does not collapse the bubble takes a really long time to go away so they conclude in their paper in plus one this week that the noise when your joints are cracking as proven in an mri scanner Mm. is that there is a bubble of gas appearing under low pressure in the joint and that's what makes the sound fascinating okay let's go to attila in durbanville hi 
Morning, really. Morning, Chris. Morning to you, all your listeners. Chris, uh, questions about the brain. The first one, if I'm correct, and if dreams have got something to do with some electrical uh, mini-volt currents, etc., would they technically ever be able to to record one's dreams? And secondly, I understand that man started to develop when uh, some genes that inhibit brain brain growth were being inhibited and therefore our brain could grow more and we became more clever, etc. Why would that be originally be an, a gene that inhibits brain growth? Apart from the fact that our brains could sort of crash our skull, but why was the gene there originally? Hello and good morning. What some great great questions. First of all, dreams. When we dream, because different parts of your brain do different jobs, they're specialised for processing different uh, tasks and roles, when you go to sleep at night and you dream, you can see that those same brain areas become activated or reanimated. And because those brain areas normally signal to your consciousness that X, Y or Z is happening to you, if you reactivate and replay those same sorts of patterns of activity when you're asleep, then as far as you're concerned, they're really happening. And that's why dreams feel so real. Can we decode them or see them? Possibly. Uh, there's a guy called Jack Gallant. There's also another team in Japan who are doing this. They have been putting people into an MRI brain scanner. And by training the scanner on what a person's brain does when they experience certain things. What I mean by that is they show them a long sequence of pictures and those pictures will all be united by certain features. For instance, they'll show them lots of pictures of cars, they'll show them lots of pictures of people, they'll show them lots of pictures of mountains. You then see how the brain responds to those pictures with those consistent features and you will get very specific patterns of activity in the regions of the brain that decode those stimuli. You can then start putting the person into a scanner and showing them random pictures, looking at the brain activity and then asking a computer, based on what that person's brain does when you show them a picture of a car or a mountain or a bus or another person, mm -hmm. what do you think, in inverted commas, this person is now looking at? And the computer can then be programmed to go to YouTube and extract bits of video sequence which are the closest match to or what it would think would produce that same sort of stimulus response in that person and you then generate a film sequence and say to the person does that look like what you were being shown and they would go yeah mm. it's pretty uncanny so yes you can begin to recreate what we think people are dreaming about or daydreaming about or thinking about or experiencing just by looking at the pattern of their brain activity that is coming brain scanners are very noisy getting someone to nod off and go to sleep in a brain scanner so that you can eavesdrop on what's happening in their brain would be a bit like you trying to go to bed in your washing machine or lying on top of your washing machine when it's on full spin. Mm. It's a really, really <laughs> uh, not a relaxing environment no. at all. So it's a very difficult experiment to do, but it's within the realms of possibility. Now, your other question about brain expansion and brain growth. What sets us apart from our primate relatives? If you, if you look at the structure of the human brain, it's very, very similar. If you hold a chimpanzee brain or um, a more primitive animal's brain in your hand, it'll, it'll be a lot smaller than your brain, but if you take a razor blade to it and you look, look at it in detail, you will see that there are all the same structures pretty much that you have in your brain will be represented in these more primitive brains. Even a rat has all of the same structures running its brain that you have, 
but it's just in humans and higher animals. They've become more and more developed. The connectivity, the connections between them have changed, and the size of different bits of the brain relative to each other have changed. So in us, our brains are quite asymmetric. We have big bulge on the left-hand side of our brain, which corresponds to where we do language. Um, the front part of our brains has become much bigger than it should normally be in lesser animals. And it happens that that front part of the brain is also the part of the brain that corresponds to higher executive function, our ability to put ourselves into other people's shoes. I am about to do something and I think, if I were to say that while I'm now on the radio, how would the listeners respond to that? Would they be offended? Would they be happy? Would they like to hear that? The ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and experience what you're about to do from their perspective to guide how you behave, that's crucial for a social species and a successful social species, and that really is what sets us apart. And there appear to be some genes which, uh, as we have evolved... Uh, appear to have been deactivated which have allowed certain bits of the brain to become relatively larger to others and one of those gene clusters is involved in in particularly the development of the front part of the brain giving us these capabilities and probably therefore making us one of the successful most successful species that have, have ever inhabited the earth but uh, we're not successful at everything because we're doing a pretty good job at ruining our planet at the moment aren't we tell me about it thank you so much attila lovely questions indeed klaus in ready hello good morning mm. Uh, yep, my question is, uh, you know, electric egg boiler. Usually, it takes about seven eggs in a in a insert, and uh, then you fill it with water and you plug it in, and after some time, the eggs are boiled. Now that calibrated glass, which uh, uh, measures the amount of water which you have to put in, it makes sense that the harder you want the egg, the more water you must put in. But what does not make sense is the less eggs there are in, the more water you must put in for the same hardness. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me, but uh, that's a that's, uh, fact. Can you explain that's that? That's the thrust of your question, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, here's the answer. If you put water in things, water's a really good cooking medium because when the temperature reaches 100 degrees C, the water's not going to get any hotter. So if the water boils and therefore boils your egg, once you're boiling at 100 degrees, the water temperature cannot become any higher unless the pressure changes or until all of the water has boiled off because what you're doing is supplying energy and the water temperature doesn't go any higher because the energy instead goes into making what's called a phase change. The water goes from being a liquid into a gas, which you, you have to put in a lot more energy to do that. And that's why the temperature is stable at 100 degrees. So the, the actual volume of water uh, to the, in proportion to the temperature isn't relevant. As long as there's water there and the heat is coming through the water, the temperature won't climb if the pressure stays the same. Now, in terms of why you would need to add a little bit more water to your egg boiler, I think it comes down to a simple question of volume. If there are more eggs in the rack, they're taking up space and therefore they're going to displace water, which means you don't need as much water to reach the same ultimate total amount of water in contact with the eggs. If you have fewer eggs, you need to put a bit more water in to make sure that all the eggs are in contact with the water and they get properly cooked. Let's go to, oh, an ad break, an ad break. Thomas is about to kill me, so I never want to defy Thomas. An ad break it is. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Yes, do call Chris with your questions. We're satisfying our curiosity about the world in which we live. Give us a call. Let's go straight to uh, Khadi Feli in Rustenburg. Hello, Khadi. Hello, Riri. Hello. Yes, my question is, I just want to know, how do I plant a seedless plant like grapes? Seedless grapes, bananas, and them. Seedless plants. 
harvest, for seedless yes. fruits, okay? So how do yes. you propagate them? If they won't make seeds, how mm. do you make new ones? Is mm. that sort Can of what you're wondering? Radio, sure, you may. Okay. Well, the answer is that they're all clones. And what that means is that you have a plant and you take a piece of that plant and you propagate it. Because one of the most amazing things about plants is that unlike a person, where if you chop your arm off and stick your arm in a pot of soil, it won't grow a new human, plants, because all of the cells in the plant have the complete genetic material of the plant in them, they have the amazing ability, because they have stem cells that are really capable of turning into any part of the plant in the plant tissue, they can reanimate the genes which they use to grow from a seed and produce roots and all that kind of thing in any of those stem cells and they'll produce a new plant. So with seedless varieties like bananas and like grapes you take cuttings or you have little suckers that come up from the roots and you chop those off and because they're an independent little plant you just propagate them. Now this is really good because it means that you can produce very large numbers of plants that are all genetically identical to each other so if you have a particular strain or cultivar which produces really really good fruit it's great to eat it tastes fantastic it produces very big yields it's a it's a grower's dream sounds fantastic the problem is that because these these uh, things are all clones they're all genetically identical they are all susceptible equally to bugs and disease and this is a major issue especially for bananas because bananas are being struck down by deadly fungi which have uh, evolved to attack these plants and because the plants are all genetically identical there's no genetic diversity in the population so the plants have no natural resistance and the fungus is just wiping out huge numbers of plants and we've already seen a number of banana plants go extinct for this reason because they've been struck down by something called panama disease the irish potato famine in the 1800s which led to the deaths of of million of a million plus irish people this again was caused by the fact that potatoes don't have sex then there's no genetic diversity mm-hmm. they're all clones of each other so they're all susceptible and one fungus came along which in fact scientists at norwich in uh, england uh, a couple of years ago discovered using specimens that were kept in a herbarium there were some old leaf specimens pressed from the 1800s in this uh, museum and in there was the genetic material of the fungus that caused the irish potato famine and they found it all right and uh, we go from there to belinda in centurion good morning to you belinda hi really I just want to find out if a chromosome can be repaired if it's damaged. Um, like an Angelman's syndrome child, the 17 chromosome is affected. Would it be able to be repaired? Hello, Belinda. At the moment, the problem we've got with with chromosomes, and just to give everyone the sort of glossary so they all understand where we are with this, your genetic material is your genome. Your genome is about three billion letters of DNA code, but it's not in one giant long string. It's actually broken up into chunks called chromosomes, and each of those contains a couple of thousand genes, and genes are individual chapters in a book. So you can think of your chromosomes as like books, you can think of the genes as like chapters in those books, and you can think of the whole collection of chromosomes as a bit like the entire Encyclopedia of Britannica sitting on your shelf, um, where you've got lots of volumes all, all linked together, and together they are the complete library of your genetic code. And if one of those chromosomes is rearranged or damaged or broken, which can happen and does frequently happen, then you have a so-called mutation and any genes which are rearranged in that breakage or they're broken in that breakage or when a chromosome breaks and, and rearranges itself then certain bits of genetic material can end up next to each other which shouldn't be 
and this can make them over or underactive. And because this is often inherited from the sperm and the egg that give rise to an individual, then every cell in the body carries that particular change. And if that particular change is destructive or deleterious to the behaviour or function of the cell, then unfortunately every cell in the body is going to have a problem. Now, the question of whether we can put this right is uh, the ultimate goal of gene therapy. We want to be able to go in and repair these kinds of things, not least because there are some people who are unfortunate enough to inherit genetic disorders, but many, many of us will acquire these sorts of genetic damages during our lifetime, and cancer is a genetic disease. About one person in three will die from cancer, and we are effectively damaging our DNA all the time, and we mm. are producing these sorts of, of rearrangements. There are now techniques that enable you to go in and surgically correct broken bits of chromosome and um, fix them. There are literally g g DNA or genetic editing tools now available. And they're only a laboratory tool at the moment, but I don't think it will be terribly long before people are beginning to say, well, look, we can fix certain disorders in humans like this, um, and they're beginning to get more confident with them. Let's have a go. Chris, I have a question. When a doctor uh, asks you to stick your tongue out to check the tongue, what, what is it that they're looking for? What are the signs <laughs> that something is? Uh, well, they they do that to things. me at home quite um, often. <laughs> You see, the first thing a doctor does when they, when they come and see you, hopefully they introduce themselves and say hello and shake your hand. <laughs> but when they're shaking your hand, they're also subtly looking at your fingernails because there's a lot that your fingernails give away about a person's health, and particularly a condition called clubbing, which is where the, the fingers swell at the end, the nails bulge like the end of a drumstick. And that tells the doctor important things, and the same sorts of subtle clues can be given away in a tongue. A person who, for instance, doesn't have enough iron in their diet may have glossitis, a sore tongue or a swollen tongue. Uh, the infections with certain bugs, including things like streptococcus, can cause uh, redness on the tongue, a strawberry tongue. Mm -hmm. So you can pick up quite a lot about a person. You can tell about their diet. You can look at the texture of the tongue and you can therefore tell whether or not they're, they're eating healthily or whether they've been eating at all or whether they're dehydrated. All those kinds of things can be picked up just by looking subtly at someone's tongue. It also gives you a good view of the back of their throat where you might be able to learn something as well. Okay. Uh, Gerald in Houtbay, good morning. Good morning. Mm, I think we've had this one before, but uh, no problem. We can go through it. Okay. Mm. Um, my question is this. We know that the world is running out of water, and I believe it is possible <clears throat> for mankind to make more water by combining hydrogen and oxygen in the atmosphere, but that is very difficult and very expensive. But <clears throat> if the need should ever become so great that nations should start trying to make water, uh, <clears throat> is it really a feasible the possibility and what would the social, political and economic consequences be? Well, you're right, Gerald, that uh, water is probably going to be the thing that the, the next major sort of wars are fought over, water and land, because the population is rising, and as more of us populate the Earth and contribute to the carbon dioxide burden in the atmosphere, this is causing global warming, this is going to cause climate change, we know that the climate's changing anyway, and that parts of the Earth are getting drier, other parts are getting wetter. The net result is that the habitable part of the world, where there is the right amount of water and sunshine and good quality land for us to live in, that problem is going to shrink. It's certainly going to shrink relatively because the human population is not shrinking. 
what can we do about this? Well, you're right that what we can do is to create water, and we can do that by merging hydrogen and oxygen together. We can also grab water out of the air. We can also desalinate water. All of these processes are very energy intensive, so it's a, it's a balance between uh, what we want to do and what we can do. What scientists are doing, though, is working very hard to come up with new approaches to do this in ways that are more energy efficient or use renewable energy. Uh, a lot of the energy that comes into the Earth from the sun, every square, every square meter of the Earth's surface is being hit by energy at the rate of one kilowatt. We, we waste the vast majority of that solar energy at the moment. If we were to, to put a, a small array of solar panels on just a fraction of the Sahara Desert, you could actually supply the entire world's current energy supplies. So actually, where most of the water shortages are going to be most acute is in, hottest, is in the hottest countries. There's plenty of sunshine there. There's no reason why we couldn't have solar-powered or other um, clever desalination systems that would help to separate the salts from, from water, make clean, fresh water that could be used for both agriculture, growing food, and, uh, and also giving people some water to drink. Chris in Belleville, last one. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. Um, my question regards to a, a thing you had a couple of weeks ago about uh, fizzy drinks and the amount of sugar they are in them and how bad they are for you. Um, I use a couple of fizzy drinks as a mixer in some of my whiskey. My question is, does the, will the reaction with the whiskey change the composition of that fizzy drink to make it less sugary and therefore less bad? I'd be more concerned about them changing oh. the composition of the alcohol. But anyway, yeah. I'm afraid, no, it's not. I'm afraid it's a pipe dream. Um, no, when you take sugar and you dissolve sugar in water, you have the same amount of sugar, it's just dissolved in water. If you then add some whiskey, what you now have is the same amount of sugar dissolved in some water with some whiskey added to it, but the whiskey is now dissolved in the water as well. So there are some instances where a chemical reaction could happen and change the composition a little bit, but when you're just using these things as mixers, no, I'm really sorry, that's not going to work. And the other thing to bear in mind is that number of, the number of calories in alcohol is roughly four times greater in terms of the energy density of alcohol compared with the corresponding carbohydrate. So you will get four times fatter if you, if you drink the same amount of alcohol as you do uh, glucose or, or sugary drinks. But then again, there's a, another health impact of doing that. So do drink sensibly. <laughs> sensibly, of course. Have a lovely weekend, Chris. We'll see you again next week. Thanks, really. Bye, everybody. Have a great weekend. Bye-bye. 